going to be looking through Revelation 6 again this morning, and last week we just took the first two verses in the chapter. We're going to read the first eight verses through the four horsemen again this morning, and then we're going to take on the second, third, and fourth horsemen that are listed out. If you would, join me in Revelation 6, starting in verse 1. John writes, now when I... Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So last week we saw in the first two verses the opening of the first seal, and that corresponded to the rider on the white horse. And we identified this rider, tried to be fairly careful in doing so because he's commonly misconstrued as Jesus himself. He is not in fact Jesus, but the Antichrist. He is the instead of Christ. And of course, he's not going to come riding in on a black horse or a red horse saying, ha, 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 ha. He's clever. He's a political genius. He's savvy with words. One of the prevailing characteristics through scripture of the Antichrist is his mouth. He uses his mouth to speak great pompous words. And so he's smart. He's going to ride in on a horse that resembles who he's trying to basically present himself as. He is riding in on a white horse. And his identity has kind of fooled a lot of commentators into thinking that this is Jesus riding in. But Jesus comes riding in on a white horse in Revelation 19, not in Revelation 6. Uh, Verse 2 says that he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And that bow I see as a sign of a covenant. And I think that it probably is a bow like we would use for archery, but I think that that is also symbolic of the covenant that he will make with Israel. And a crown was given to him, and we know this is a Stephanos. This crown is what's given to a victor in the Greek games. And it is given to him. 
Jesus, when he rides in in Revelation 19, is said to be wearing a diadem, which is a different kind of crown. A diadem is reserved for rulers or sovereigns. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And we know that he conquered or is going to conquer through peace, through promise of peace. But that's not going to last very long. The second seal. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. So this second seal um, unleashes this second horseman uh, riding on a fiery red horse. It's interesting to read and study this passage because there are these rumblings all around us already. We see war famine, pestilence, death, all of these things are happening around us, but they're not like they're going to happen in this time. Um, In Matthew 24, also in Mark 13 and Luke 21, Jesus talks to his disciples about signs of his future coming. He begins by telling his disciples, take heed that no one deceive you. For there will be many come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And that sounds like the rider on the white horse. Deception. False Christs. And in each of these passages, that's the first thing that Jesus mentions. Then he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And that sounds like the rider of the red horse that we'll see in just a second represents war. But this is the important part. Jesus then says, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. People often point to these wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes as signs of the end times. And while that's partly true, Jesus said that these are only the beginning of sorrows. And I tend to look at these as birth pangs of a new age, if you will. We can look at history and see that all of these specific things have been happening for centuries and centuries upon centuries. So we really can't look at, for example, wars in general and say, well, because there are wars in the world, we know that we're in the end times. Because that is not, in general, a sign. But we do see our current military technology lining up with things that are presented in the book of Revelation. And we'll look at at least one this morning. And like the contractions, when you're about to give birth, these things start happening closer and closer together when it's almost time to deliver that baby or come into a new age, as we see in Revelation. The frequency and intensity of the wars rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, the intensity and frequency starts picking up and picking up. 
And I believe that this is what we're seeing in the world. We're moving at a faster pace now than we were 100, 200 years ago. But what we're seeing right now is still the restrained version of all these things. The unrestrained version comes about when these seals are broken, um, which is after the restrainer is taken out. In reference, 2 Thessalonians 2.7. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit is indwelling each of us as believers. So when we are taken out, the church is raptured off the world into heaven. The Holy Spirit in that capacity, working through believers, is also taken out. I believe that's what it refers to as the restrainer. So the preserving influence of the Holy Spirit in his church goes out of the world, and evil is let loose. It's unrestrained. And with evil comes wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, all of these things that we see. Now, while we are seeing the restrained version of all these things today, they will be unleashed on a whole new level when this comes to pass, this in Revelation 6. That will be the unrestrained version. And we're going to take a look at these three remaining horsemen this morning, and we'll try to get some insight into the unrestrained version by looking at our restrained version. And so we'll, we'll take these one by one. Revelation 6, 3 and 4 talks about this fiery red horse. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The the color red is often associated with terror and death. The red dragon we see in Revelation 12 and the red beast, which is seen in Revelation 17. Um, Also, you can reference Matthew 24, 6, 7, Mark 13, 7, and 8. Luke 21, 9 and 10, and Daniel eleven thirty six, The sword, the Machaira, speaks of war. The rider on this horse has a sword, a great sword. Um, and that is speaking of war. Reference Ezekiel 38, 21, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 33, Micah 7, Daniel eleven thirty three. This sword references war. It's estimated that for the past 15 years, we've spent roughly $3 trillion, with a T, annually on weaponry. That's global. $3 trillion annually on weaponry. That is $8.5 billion, with a B, dollars a day. That's $344 million per hour. $6 million per minute, and $100,000 per second spent on weaponry globally. And all of that, just so during the midst of all of our other problems, we can blow each other up. 
I mean, this is insane. And all of that weaponry is being stored, it's being prepared for usage. Why else would you have all that? Today, there are 27 countries with long-range ballistic missiles. There are about nine countries that we know of with nuclear capabilities. The United States, Russia, China, France, Britain, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. All with nuclear capabilities. 40% of global spending is on weapons. 50% of all scientific research is in some way or fashion focused on developing weaponry. The warheads on just one U.S. nuclear-armed submarine have seven times the destructive power of all the bombs dropped during World War II, and that includes the two atomic bombs. Seven times that destructive power on one U.S. submarine. At any given time, the U.S. will usually have roughly 10 of those subs ready to go. More than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons lie under the control of two world powers. You have a guess? The United States is one. Who's the other one? Russia. The United States and Russia control 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. Now, there are, as we move through Revelation, what I like to call technology statements. And these are statements that, you know, a number of years ago, they wouldn't have really made sense. You you wouldn't have been able to conceptualize how it would have been able to be carried out. Okay. For example, go back to Matthew 24, 22. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. During the time of the Civil War, for instance, you may not have been able to conceptualize humanity wiping itself out completely, no flesh being able to survive, with muskets and bayonets. That's just not really feasible. But today, when you see the nuclear capabilities, you know, just one submarine having seven times the destructive power of all the bombs dropped in World War II, when you see that kind of technology, that kind of capability, we can see, well, yeah, I mean, it would be easy for humanity to just wipe itself out with a couple clicks, you know, send a few nuclear bombs, and no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So this is a technology statement. Today, we can see how that would be feasible. But in the estimation of professionals, nuclear war isn't even our biggest threat. The biggest threat is closely related to nuclear war, but it involves the detonation of these bombs at higher altitudes. And the initial devastation is less, but the long-term devastation, I would argue, is greater. 
And we know these as EMPs or electromagnetic pulses. And if you're familiar with anything about EMPs, it is a nuclear weapon that's detonated at high altitudes. And something in that detonation interacts with the atmosphere and it sends out a pulse and it completely fries all electronics to the horizon. So at a proper altitude, it could affect about 70%, that's an estimation, of the population of the United States without power, without water, without transportation, cell service. It would take us back hundreds of years in an instant. Um, so if you can imagine this EMP going off, wiping out most of the grid, all of the grid, on the eastern side of the United States, um, up to the Midwest, basically, all of that area without power, without heat, without AC, of course, those are the more silly things that we need, <laughs> but no trucks are able to deliver the food to your grocery store. Your water can't be pumped to your house. That needs electricity. The fuel pumps at your gas station don't work because those run on electricity. Now, I don't know how many cars even are in existence anymore that don't run some kind of a circuit, some kind of electrical component to them. I mean, we're talking widespread devastation. Um, and it's not like in the general you know, nuclear sense where everything is wiped out, but it starts societal breakdown. You saw what a couple rolls of toilet paper will do. Now, imagine the stores empty. The food that we need to survive is not on the shelves. This is the kind of threat that we're looking at with these EMPs. And there's a report, there's a couple actually, that you can go home, Google, and read on the internet. And it's free access. It's called the Report of the Commission to Assess the Threat to the United States from Electromagnetic Pulse Attack. That was published in 2008. And then there was a subsequent one published in 2014. They basically stated that an EMP attack, one singular EMP attack, could cripple the United States. That was their finding. And there would be no functioning electronic equipment to speak of. And in this commission estimated that within 12 months of a nationwide blackout, up to 90% of the U.S. population could possibly die of starvation, disease, and societal breakdown. 90% of the U.S. population. Imagine what society would look like with none of our necessities. We would resort back hundreds of years. The police aren't coming. They can't go anywhere. Can you defend yourself and your family? That's a fair question. Do you have food and drinking water in reserve? I think that's a fair question. Let's move on and look at this black horse. 
When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. The color black is often associated with famine. Um, we see that a couple times in scripture. And the phrase to eat bread by weight is a Jewish term that effect, effectively says that the food is scarce. They would use that term to describe times of famine. Ezekiel 4.10 says, And your food which you shall eat be by weight. Twenty shekels a day, from time to time you shall eat it. So we have this picture with this black horse of famine, widespread. Now what causes famine? There are a few causes. One is uncontrollable weather. Weather is obviously a factor in growing crops that we need to create our food. But the crops are both a food source for us and for the animals, which provide most of the protein in our diets. If the livestock can't get the crops, we can't get the livestock. When adverse weather conditions affect crop yields, famine follows close behind. And you can see the story of Joseph's family coming to Egypt to get food. Another cause of famines, unsurprisingly, is war. Famine follows war, and it's a consistent phenomenon. Famine is a consistent product of warfare. War interrupts the ongoing daily economic practices that are so important for society, and it creates an environment where food is scarce. It's notable, too, that this black horse follows the red horse, war. So the famine follows the war. Another cause of famine, and probably the saddest cause of famine, is governmental policy. In the 20th century, most of the famines have either been caused deliberately or by economic systems that were crippled by dictatorial governments. Deliberately caused famine through political means. There's no doubt it's easier for a regime to take over a country when they depend on him for their very food. So if you can take out the food supply and it all has to go through you, you control a lot in that country. Now, we see in the New King James, it says a quart of wheat for a denarius. Quart is translated as measure in the King James. And that was the ration that a Roman soldier would get during a time of famine. It would be roughly equivalent to a loaf of bread. A measure. A denarius is an allusion to a full day's wage. 
and we can reference Matthew 20 uh, for that picture. This picture is one of absolute scarcity. A day's wages will only get you one day's ration. You start adding up in your head, oh, I got two kids to take care of, a wife, maybe a grandkid or two. One day's ration is not going to get you very far. And if you have people that depend on you for support, and this is not going to be a good deal, barely enough to survive and not even close what you'd need to support your family. And what we're seeing here effectively is hyperinflation. We, we all know the concept of inflation, but we see the prices of food have shot up so high that it takes an entire day's wages to purchase one measure of wheat, three measures of barley. The currency has been severely devalued. Now, what causes inflation? The introduction of new currency into the market devalues what currency is already in circulation. And it was interesting to see that a lot of newer definitions of inflation will confuse its cause and its effect. They'll say that inflation is caused by a dramatic rise in prices. While that does follow inflation, that's not the cause, but the effect of inflation. But the Webster's 1957 New 20th Century Unabridged Dictionary of English Language gets it right. This is what it says. Inflation is an increase in the amount of currency in circulation, resulting in a relatively sharp and sudden fall of its value and rise in prices. The introduction of currency into the economy is what drives inflation. And we saw that you know, in the 1930s, of course, and we've seen it again in more recent times, and in out checks. Printing more money. That drives inflation. The gas prices have reflected that. Inflation is something that drives these food prices up. And so we can expect to see a period of hyperinflation after this seal is broken open. Probably the most dramatic example of hyperinflation happened in Germany in the 1920s. By late 1923 in Germany, 300 paper mills had 2,000 printing presses working around the clock to crank out banknotes. The result of this was the doubling of consumer prices every three days. How can you live like that? One day... Bread costs $2 a loaf. Three days later, $4 a loaf. Three days later, $8 a loaf. $16.32. On and on. And we see this kind of inflation occur because a nation's leaders will create unbacked paper money and it will flood into the economy. The important piece here is that it's unbacked. There's nothing backing up the currency. Its actual value is only substantiated by how much you believe it's worth. 
So if tomorrow you woke up and across America there was this realization, wow, this piece of paper and cotton is worth nothing, then you would be exactly right. Because we've come off of the gold standard. In 1933, the dollar was taken off the gold standard so that they could print more currency to stimulate the economy and propel the country out of the Great Depression. They took us off the gold standard. And currently, the dollar is still not backed by gold. It may also startle you to consider the United States national debt. The actual U.S. deficit has been calculated, and this is a few years old, this figure. The U.S. deficit has been calculated several years ago at $222 trillion. This includes the $17 trillion of national debt plus the unfunded liabilities for Social Security, Medicaid, and other entitlement programs. Now, we throw this word trillion around, but we don't actually know what it means. I'd argue that there is not just a quantitative difference, but a qualitative difference between million, billion, and trillion. So let's look at this. Instead of dollars, let's deal with seconds. Maybe that can help us conceptualize. If I owed you a debt, and I told you that I'd pay you back in full in only 1 million seconds, would you agree to those terms? I would pay you back in 12 days. Now, if I told you I'd pay you back in 1 billion, with a B, seconds, would you accept that offer? I'd pay you back in 32 years. What if I told you that I would pay you back in one trillion seconds, the T? Would you accept that offer? I would pay you back in 32,000 years. There is not just a quantitative difference in those numbers, but a qualitative difference. You're talking about something different entirely between a million, billion, and trillion. There's such a leap between those three figures that the last two might as well not even be considered because you would have to wait so long for repayment. Now consider that the U.S. national debt is estimated at $222 trillion. Now, I know exactly what you're wondering. Is there any possible way that that can ever be repaid? The answer is a resounding and emphatic no. There is no way. Anybody, any politician that promises that they will get the debt repaid is completely full of themselves or ignorant. It's not actually possible for the debt to be repaid, and this is why. The McKinsey Global Institute, who are professionals in this area, have estimated that the total wealth of the entire world is around $200 trillion. The U.S. deficit is greater than the accumulated wealth of the world. Let that sink in for a second. And that's how we're starting our Sunday morning. 
The voice that John hears says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Wheat was the better of these two foodstuffs. Barley was a little bit different, had to be cooked a little bit differently, and it was not as desirable uh, as we can tell because it's cheaper. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Oil corresponds to the cosmetics that are used by the rich. And wine, of course, is also a more luxury item. And this is saying that the rich won't be hit as hard by this famine. And even during World War II, we saw that the richest men could still get the meat and the other foodstuffs that they desired, while the poor man was suffering and starving. The famine did not hit the rich as hard as it hitted the poor. And it will be no different during this time of future famine, where the rich continue living in their luxury and the poor are hit the hardest. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Now we come to this pale horse, the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. This word pale to describe this horse is chloros in the Greek. And this color is descriptive of a ghastly pale green. It's a otherwise livid. If you imagine what we call zombie green, a really bright neon, almost green, and then make it more see-through, more pale in effect, that's the color that we're talking about. You can also think of it, this is more gruesome, but as flesh is decaying, it turns this pale green hue. And that's the color that we're seeing, this chloros. This color is emblematic of death, and it's reminiscent of this rotting flesh. And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. There's two personages in view here. There is Thanatos, which is death. Thanatos is in the Greek. Thanatos is the rider on the pale horse, and Hades which is the term in the Greek, Hades. In King James, it's hell translated. Hades follows closely behind. Now, what's the difference between these two? You have death, you have Hades. Death claims the body. Hades claims the soul. There's two parts to this. And Hades follows shortly after death. The spirit goes off to wherever its destination is right after death occurs. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by beasts of the earth. So it was granted to Thanatos and Hades 
to take a quarter of the world's population using various means. And I'll point out that these means uh, were previously mentioned. You know, the other riders of the horses. Can you imagine every one out of four people being gone in a short period of time? A quarter of the earth's population being taken by the sword that speaks of war. Hunger, of course, that's the famine that we talked about. Death, now by far the worst thing to be killed by is death. There's no getting around it. The beasts of the earth. And I want us to get away from the thought that these beasts of the earth are just lions and tigers and bears. Because those are not the most dangerous beasts of the earth. The most dangerous beasts are microscopic. We've seen the recent COVID outbreak, a virus, but bacteria, I think, would fit into this category of beasts of the earth. History has seen what a profound impact that disease can have on the population. And in more recent history, we've seen that even your response to a disease can have an effect on population, the policy that follows the outbreak. There was a time when the medical profession felt that they had more or less conquered the world's major diseases. That illusion is quickly fading away, and they're not so sure anymore. Now, there are several that are showing back up with strains that are more hardy and more resistant to antibiotics now. Some of these include tuberculosis, the staph bacteria, which is the number one cause of hospital infections, and Ebola, and that's just to name a few. At one point in history, chemical warfare was the most deadly, but no longer. Along with these EMP attacks, biological warfare ranks among the most threatening today. Unlike chemical weapons, biological weapons actually get more deadly over time. It's harder to get rid of the effects of a biological weapon. For example, once anthrax spores are released, it can remain a problem in that area for decades, decades and decades. When we look at the prophetic reemergence of Babylon on the world scene, it's interesting that it ultimately becomes uninhabitable not just uninhabited, but uninhabitable. We can look at a few references to to see Babylon's reemergence, and I'd encourage you to read all of these chapters together in one sitting. You'll get a good full view of what we're talking about. It's Isaiah 13, Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, and Revelation 17, and Revelation 18. Again, that's Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. And as you read through that, you'll pick out a few key verses in those chapters 
that talk about the uninhabitable nature of this reemerging Babylon. Isaiah 13, 20, Jeremiah 50, 39, and 40, Jeremiah 51, 26, 37, 43, and 63. And you can pick those out as you read through it. Will it become uninhabitable due to biological contamination? Because spores were released and you can't get rid of them or maybe radioactivity, the fallout from nuclear war. These are possibilities, I'm not sure. But there are several means by which we could see that land and just land mass could become uninhabitable. Now, as we come to the end of these four horsemen of the apocalypse, I want to pose a question. Now, we've talked about this before, but I'm going to get a little bit different spin on it this morning. What is the purpose of prophecy? And why do we take our time to study prophecy? I would say it's not our job to predict the future, but to prepare for it. Now, we've looked at a lot of things this morning are concerning. And it should spur you on to preparation. Spiritual preparation, no doubt, as we see the Lord's coming approaching extremely rapidly, we should prepare ourselves to meet our Creator. Yes. But also physical preparation. These things aren't confined to this time period, speaking of, in general, wars, famines, disease. The frequency of these things is picking up. I think it would be a good idea to be prepared for what's coming. Because, just because, I'm telling you that, hey, the church is going to be raptured off of the earth before the tribulation begins. Just because I say that doesn't mean that it's not going to get bad before that. I mean, we see the direction that all of this is moving. We know that the governments are going to coalesce. The religions are going to coalesce. The governments don't have to wait for the Antichrist to be revealed before they start to merge. And we're actually seeing that right now. If you want to keep your eye on a group, Keep your eye on the World Economic Forum. They meet in Davos, Switzerland, and their sole purpose is to bring about a one-world type of government, which we know will be operable when the Antichrist comes in. He'll take over that system and he'll run with it. The governments are already starting to merge. Um, The UN is another big one. And we're starting to see this movement. Now, these things that we talked about this morning are going to get worse before they get better. I think that a, I will say, a moderately prepared individual should have a couple weeks worth of food on hand, water, and some kind of way to protect yourself. And that's just a 
practical and personal, you know, I'm just telling you this free information, take it or leave it. I think that would be a good idea to have, you know, just as a, a practical prevention. We are currently being sold lies from the world. Man tells us that the world is getting better, but God says it will become increasingly worse. Man says that peace among nations is close at hand. And we know that the Antichrist will use that. God says that there will be wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms against kingdoms. And man expects to win the battle against disease and famine. But God says there is to be fearful judgments of disease and famine. Man is telling us that these things are getting better, that we're on the brink of solving all these problems. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is much more to come. And that's what I'm staking my claim on. Do not be deceived. That's the first thing that Jesus told his disciples in that Olivet Discourse. Do not be deceived. There are many coming in my name. Do not be deceived by the world and all these lies that are being spewn all over the place. Keep looking up. Keep awaiting. But don't await passively. Our waiting should be spurred on by the imminent return of Christ. We should be doing something about the fact that he's coming soon. We shouldn't be sitting out in a field somewhere looking up and just waiting. An active perseverance, pressing on evangelism. The evangelistic efforts should increase the closer and closer we get. And do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves especially as you see the day approaching. Let's close our study this morning in order of prayer.